I do think it's important for uh, traditions, culturally important traditions like this to have the freedom to evolve and to tell new stories. But at the same time, I think that these stories can be enriched in our own family traditions, our own holiday experience can be enriched by an appreciation of the original historical person and, and his life. Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity and the theological and historical complexity. And I am so excited for our interview today. I have my slightly ironic Christmas sweater going on today because we are talking about St. Nicholas of Myra, the saint who would become Santa Claus. I've even got the Christmas lights in the background for you, plus one if you notice the Santas over here. It is so hard to point. In any case, I am joined by Dr. Adam English today as we talk about his wonderful book, the saint who would become who would be santa claus i think you're really going to enjoy it i will say we are talking candidly about santa claus so just kind of a parental advisory warning to all of you out there who might be watching with kids but in any case i want to say real quick thanks to my patrons who make these videos possible who allow me to take the time to make these to buy the books to have the equipment to do all of this thank you so much and if you want to see this channel keep going and growing you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. Well, with that being said, here is the interview. Well, today I am joined by Dr. Adam C. English. Dr. Adam C. English serves as chair of Department of Christian Studies at Campbell University in North Carolina. He teaches undergraduate courses on theology, ethics, philosophy, and the history of Christian thought. He is the author of several books, including The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of St. Nicholas of Myra, which we'll be discussing today. And as always, you can find a link for it in the description down below. Dr. English, thank you so much for being here. And today I have to say, Merry Christmas. Thank you, Austin. I am delighted to be with you and Merry Christmas to you as well. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. I am excited to dive into this subject. People on this channel, they'll know that I love theology, they know I love history, which would be reason enough to do this video. But what they may not know is that I have like a small obsession with Christmas. I absolutely love it. I've been watching Christmas movies since like November 1st of this year. We are all decorated. We are ready to go. And so I'm just delighted to be doing this interview today. But I'd love to know what sparked your interest in St. Nicholas? Yeah, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll make it short because my background training is in theology and philosophy, like you mentioned. And, uh, you know, I began my initial uh, research in modern theology. But as I continue to read and just grow and develop as a person and as a person of faith and as a scholar, I became more and more interested in uh, ancient theology and the early church and um, you know, so that was just in my mind, but I also lead study abroad trips to Italy uh, in, on, on a regular occasion. And kind of in the course of that, I became aware that um, the, the bones of St. Nicholas uh, are, are buried in Bari, Italy, which is on the eastern coast of Italy. And then I also became aware, in addition to that, that Bari ha has a, a very lovely archive library on documents related to St. Nicholas. And so I got a, a grant to be able to go over and just paw around and peruse the, the archives and just see what was there. And quickly began to realize that there was a full story of you know, this, this amazing saint in person that had not really been told in English. We know a lot about Santa Claus. And of course, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm a a big lover of Christmas and, and everything related to it. Uh, but we just, you know, there was not much really good accurate information about St. Nicholas other than, you know, well, I mean, Santa Claus comes from uh, this, you know, old St. Nicholas who we think may have lived back in olden times and did some cool stuff, but we don't know. And, and I was able to really dive in and, and discover some documents to show we do know something about this person and what he did and how he lived. And it was just an amazing story. So I felt like I was obliged to write about it. 
That's awesome. And I mean, what an opportunity to get to go uh, not only lead those trips out uh, to Italy, which I'm jealous of all your students that have gotten to go with you, but then to get to go study in their archives. And, you know, that that transitions perfectly to where I want to go next, which is kind of like what source material do we have on St. Nicholas? And I'll add that I was quite shocked when I started getting interested in making a video about this, that it wasn't like a mountain of books being written on this. There's really, it seems relatively few, at least in English, like you mentioned. So what sources do we have? What, what can we go off of as we try to recreate the life of St. Nicholas? Yeah, you know, there is a reason why we don't have just a mountain of books and, and just um, a wealth of information about this person. Obviously, it would be best if we had writings in Nicholas's own hand, and maybe second best, uh, it would be great if contemporaries of Nicholas wrote about him or, or someone, you know, in, in close proximity to his life were to write about him. Uh, but the sources are not that good, unfortunately. And um, so for that reason, there there is some scholarly skepticism about the life of St. Nicholas, uh, what he did in, in all actuality. So we definitely need to approach the sources with some care and some caution um, because, um, you know, they're, they're not maybe the, the, the types of historical sources that would really allow us to pinpoint some, some facts about him. But I think there's enough there that when we cobble it all together, we can establish a real life, a real person, and some real works that got memorialized and remembered by generations. So all that's sort of a preview to say um, the earliest works that we have that reference Nicholas uh, come a couple of hundred years after his death. And so just, you know, try to imagine, you know, writing a biography of, of somebody, you know, that lived, I don't know, 400 years ago, and, and you're the first one to write something on it, right? So uh, there's a lot of oral history, and then maybe some documents have been lost um, in time down through history. Uh, but we do have a number of fragments from different sources that relay stories and then ultimately you have uh, some biographies that are written uh, and, and that we can draw from that seem to have enough historical references and, and clues for us as historians and scholars to be able to at least have some, some certainty, some assurance of the historicity uh, of those documents. Um, but then there is a lot of legend that gets mixed into it as well. So I can definitely appreciate why historians would um, approach this story with caution uh, because there's a lot of legend mixed into the history. And so some of the work that I was able to do is try to separate out some of the legend from the actual historical data. Um, yeah, just to give you an example of that, <clears throat> We often, when you see stories of St. Nicholas uh, in, in his life, the historical St. Nicholas, um, you might hear people reference the names of his parents and maybe even that he uh, was raised in a monastery by his uncle and that he took a pilgrimage trip uh, across the Mediterranean Sea to Jerusalem and spent some time there. And Unfortunately, those are all stories of a different Nicholas, uh, Nicholas of Zion. In the 10th century, though, those other stories about a different Nicholas altogether get woven into the stories about our St. Nicholas and become one story. So that's just maybe one example of how history has a way of, you know, gathering up these these bits and pieces of story and legend and just kind of putting together into a good holiday tale, right? So we do that all the time. Um, but uh, the, there's a good bit of historical kind of archaeology that's got to happen with, with someone like St. Nicholas. Sure, yeah. And I think, I mean, we see that happening with other people in the Middle Ages too, whether that's like Mary Magdalene or different people where you kind of get uh, almost a legendary figure that is the amalgamation of a couple figures, which is fascinating to, I'm sure, to have to kind of rifle through all of that. With that being said, what are some of the just basic outlines of his life that we can establish with some amount of uh, confidence about his life? 
seems pretty certain uh, that he was born in the late 300s. Um, so, uh, I mean, excuse me, late 200s, excuse me. Um, maybe about 280, 270, 260, somewhere in there. In Patara, which is on the southern coast of what is now Turkey, uh, Patara is mentioned in the book of Acts, along with Myra, as both places where Paul made port at different points and may have even established a church there. So there is, in fact, a, a, the ruins of an ancient church from that period in in Patara. And we might imagine, you know, Nicholas, you know, attending church there with his parents. Uh, it seems pretty clear that his parents were Christian and, and raised him in that Christian faith and that his parents died while he was still fairly young. We, we know of a, a plague that went through that area, you know, around that time, Nicholas being left with uh, some money, some amount of fortune from his parents, but also being left with this sense of faith and calling and a sense of, of mission and, and service to the Lord. And so he wanted to act on that. And, you know, that, that really leads into maybe the most well-known story about St. Nicholas that I'm sure your viewers have heard. And the one that really connects him with Christmas, the story of the three dowries when Nicholas was still a young man, uh, not yet a, a priest or a bishop or any, any type of Christian minister. He heard of someone there in Patara who had lost you know, all of his wealth and was in true uh, in a true situation of financial destitute to the point of considering selling off his three daughters into some sort of, sort of slavery or prostitution. It's an act that I can't imagine any parent today would even consider, but we do have records from this period of parents doing just this, selling off their children. And so, you know, try to, you know, I'd love for your, your viewers to try to imagine how desperate would you have to be? How bad would things have, have to become where you would actually consider, you know, parting with your children and being forced to give up your children for uh, to pay off a debt um, or something like that? Uh, it is a truly desperate situation. Nicholas decides to intervene, but he doesn't want recognition for it. Uh, he doesn't want any kind of accolades for it. And so in the dead of night, stops by this man's house and throws a bag of gold through the window. And then sort of watches to see what the man does with it. And as the story goes, at least uh, this man uses the money as a dowry so that one of his daughters might be able to marry out of their condition. And then when Nicholas sees how that money's used, he returns a second time with a second um, lump of money that gets used as a dowry. And then a third time, by which point, you know, the father is desperate to know who is this benefactor and, uh, you know, wh why are they doing this? And when the father hit, hears the bag of gold hit the floor, he hops up, runs out and catches Nicholas and, uh, you know, forces his identity. Who is who is this? Why have you done this? And Nicholas, of course, says, you know, I've, I've done it for the love of the Lord and because, um, you know, I, I saw someone need one. I don't want any recognition. Don't tell anybody that I've done this for you. But we have the story today. So clearly the father told somebody. And of course, you can see in there the outlines of the Sa of the Santa Claus story, a nighttime visit uh, with gifts in bags. Um, and then in the uh, retelling of this story, you know, the middle aged retelling of the story, Nicholas comes by the house and the windows are locked. And so he has to drop the bag of gold down the chimney where it lands in one of the girl's stockings that's hanging there to dry. And so you can capture all kinds of, um, you know, Santa Claus illusions here. But it was a story that really just captivated people in lots of ways. And I think, part, you know, I don't know, we, we, we might sort of just guess at why people would be so fascinated with this story in particular. It's a fairly mundane story in one sense. Nicholas doesn't perform any miracles. He doesn't raise anybody from the dead or um, he doesn't fight anybody. I mean, you know, it's, it's it, in some sense, this is a kind of thing that anybody could do. Uh, just helping out a neighbor in need anonymously. I think that might be the appeal right there uh, because it is something that anybody could do. It's a very relatable type of story. 
and is a story that's different from a lot of the other saint stories that were floating around at that time uh, that involved martyrdom, that involved miracles. And here's Nicholas just doing something that's, you know, completely ordinary and yet uh, completely revolutionary, completely uh, godly and, and something that Jesus would do. And so it just, it just strikes all the right notes, right? Uh, so that's an early story of St. Nicholas that, again, is one that is still with us and, and still, I think, captivates our imagination yeah. in lots of ways. Yeah, it's, it is such a beautiful story. And it's, it is interesting how you mentioned that it's not a story that is super over the top, which there were plenty of floating around in the Middle Ages. If you read like the Golden Legend, like you've got all types of really fun things to read. But there's something almost homely about this, something so accessible. And like you say, it maps onto Christmas so well. But something I found that was really interesting when reading an article that you provided uh, to me so generously uh, before the interview, which uh, you contributed to the Oxford Handbook on Christmas, which sounds like a fascinating read in and of itself, uh, is that this wasn't the most famous story early on. This was certainly the story that eventually caught much attention and shaped our understanding of St. Nicholas of Myra, but it wasn't necessarily the earliest prominent story about him. That title would go to the story about the military officers. Could you tell me a bit about that one? Because I think a lot of people won't be familiar with it. This video is brought to you in part by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is an organization of Christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need. You can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. And when you use that link, which you can find in the description down below, you will get 10% off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. That's exactly right. Um, and that I love this story for that very reason. And most folks are familiar with the Three Dowries story, but the one that circulated earliest and that we, we have lots of references to early on is just the one you mentioned that uh, in the Greek, it's known as the Proxis Distratilates or the story of the military officers. It's uh, a, a far-flung kind of story. I mean, it happens in sort of multiple acts. So I'll just try to summarize it uh, very briefly. Um, in this story, Nicholas is already more or less an old man. He's, he's well-established as, as the bishop uh, of Myra. And you know, for your viewers, uh, a bishop in this era, in the 300s, probably it was not the same things you think of as a bishop today. Um, but, uh, you know, Nicholas was, had become just a well-respected sort of leader in town, a patron of the city. And as it turns out, uh, you know, a convoy of military soldiers landed in, in Myra, the port of Myra, and came into conflict with the locals and something of a riot was about to break out. Nicholas intervened in order to just sort of broker some peace between them. And kind of as he's doing this back in town, uh, some innocent men are about to be beheaded and we don't really know what, what they have done or why they have been caught up in some kind of dragnet. So Nicholas runs back into town, stops the beheading. Uh, and I, I mentioned that because in some of the early iconography of Nicholas, you'll see Nicholas holding a sword, which is a very un-Santa-like thing to have in your hand. Um, and so it's like, why is he holding this big old sword? Well, it's a reference to this. It's not a reference to Nicholas as a military character. As you might see, you might initially think he must have been a warrior or something. No, no, no. He's actually stopping an execution, which I love that, uh, that idea as well. The point that, or the connection, though, is that the military officers 
who had landed in town and gotten to the scuffle with the locals saw how Nicholas handled the situation there and the situation with these innocent men who were about to be beheaded. And they remembered it. You know, it's kind of one of the things that's sort of, you know, they, they remember that this guy. Uh, when they got back to Constantinople, the story goes, here's kind of maybe the legendary part, uh, they were arrested uh, on a, and accused of conspiring to assassinate the emperor, Constantine, and thrown into jail. And while in jail, they prayed to the god of Nicholas and prayed for, for help. And as the story goes, Nicholas showed up in a dream to the, to the emperor and told him, you know, to let these guys go, in uh, which the emperor did. Uh, so uh, Nicholas saves the day sort of in multiple ways. First of all, he, he saved the day by stopping this riot between the locals and these Roman soldiers. Then he saves the day by stopping an execution. And then he saves the day from hundreds of miles away by appearing in, in a dream to the emperor to save these military soldiers from beheading. So there's a lot of pieces to that, that story. Almost none of them connect with Christmas at all. Um, but uh, it, it was a very popular story. And the, the connection here for folks, <laughs> if, you, if you follow that much, here's the other interesting connection. As this story was retold in the Middle Ages and then also performed as a play in the Middle Ages, um, they started to introduce some variations to it, uh, one of which is the, the story that you, you may be familiar with of um, Nicholas shows up at an inn uh, that is like a, uh, a, a hotel, an inn, and the innkeeper has butchered three young kids or people, guests, and stuff them in a pickling barrel. Uh, and Nicholas uncovers the crime and restores these, this, these three to life. It's a, it's a corruption, a variation of this story in a weird way. Um, but you know, you've heard of like three minutes in a tub, the old rhyme about three minutes in a tub, it's a reference to that, that, that story. And so another image you'll see of Nicholas, in addition to Nicholas holding a sword, is you'll see Nicholas presiding over a big pickle barrel <laughs> and you know people coming out from the pickle barrel uh, which is a weird very unchristmassy type of thing to see uh, but when you see that that's what it is that's fascinating and i'm i'm loving how people are getting background now for some of these images that they might see and i'll try to find some of them and put them in the video because they do seem so far removed from our vision of Santa Claus today, which is in part, you know, going to be natural because our vision of Santa Claus today has evolved into something very peculiar in its own right as kind of this bastion of like Western materialism, right? Um, which exactly. is also a, a little uh, off-brand, shall we say, from <laughs> the original. Uh, but speaking of kind of odd stories, I want to kind of wrap our three stories about St. Nicholas with this one, which certainly files under the category of odd, perhaps not as odd as finding people in pickle jars, but it's uh, a story that I think, as you wrote, survives better in memes than it does in modern scholarship. And that is the story of St. Nicholas punching Arius at the Council of Nicaea. What, what can we say about this? Do we have any idea where this came from? Is there a kernel of truth in here anywhere? Like, talk about this story for us. Yeah, and I know that on your your show you have uh, you, know, you dive into theology and you've talked about some of the church councils uh, and things like that before. Um, so the Council of Nicaea occurred in the year three twenty five um, under kind of the guidance of Emperor Constantine. Uh, Nicholas was not only alive during this period but attended this council, or at least the best evidence seems to suggest he was there. Um, there are actual lists of those who attended, and in all of the lists that show that over 300 people in attendance, uh, Nicholas's name appears in those lists. 
Now, we don't, it, from the original records, we don't have any indication of Nicholas doing anything or really contributing in any way. We don't have great records for the proceedings of Nicaea. We have the Nicene Creed that comes out of it. Um, but uh, we don't really have much else to go on. But Nicholas was associated with orthodoxy and on the Nicene cause and all of this. And so, and I think that maybe that's more the connection than anything. But yeah, in the, you know, around 1400 or so is the first reference we have to it. Uh, a story emerges that um, Nicholas, you know, is, is sitting there and he's hearing Arius, who is kind of the arch heretic of the Council of Nicaea and, and is espousing this heresy about the nature of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he's not equal, co-equal with the Father in some way. And as he's listening to this, you know, his 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 fervor, his zeal for Christ and for the gospel just, you know, overwhelms him and he, he hops up and slaps Arius. And for this, you know, offense in front of the emperor, in front of this esteemed council, uh, Nicholas is deprived of his bishop's robes and actually put in prison and his beard is burnt off. Um, in the middle of the night, uh, Jesus and Mary both show up to, to Nicholas there in, in the jail cell and his beard grows back and um, his his garments are returned to him. And of course, uh, when the jailer in the morning sees this and the other bishops come by the jail and see this, then they realize that Nicholas has been vindicated. And uh, Nicholas then proceeds to explain uh, the Trinity, the workings of the Trinity, the Orthodox view of the Trinity to the council uh, by way of holding up a brick, which both explodes into flames and also, uh, you know, melts into water and dust in his hands. And so, you know, the, the idea that the, the brick is God, which is composed of water, sand and fire, uh, they go together to make this brick. And so, Sometimes you'll see images of Nick Nicholas with an exploding brick in his hand that's also dripping water. Uh, that's a symbol of the Trinity. Nothing to do with Christmas <laughs> as well. And then again, there are some, uh, for example, the, the Church of St. Nicholas in Bari, Italy, has this huge fresco image of Nicholas slapping areas, uh, which again, a very un-Santa-like thing to do. Um, so it, unfortunately it has no basis in history that the legend didn't come about until, you know, a thousand years after the death of Nicholas. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of other reasons we know it, it can't be historically true. One would simply be that Arius himself, uh, was not in attendance at the council of Nicaea and he was not a bishop. Um, so he, he would not have actually been there. A letter from Arius was read to the council. And there were a, a couple of Eusebius of Nicomedia were there to sort of, uh, I guess, um, express his views, um, but he himself would not have been there to be slapped in the first place. So uh, there you have it. But yeah, yeah, you're right. On, on the internet, there's all these great memes about this time of year. Um, you know, I saw Santa slapping Arius, you know, to the old, I saw Santa kissing Mama and that kind of thing. So. He's great memes out there. And like, what, what is this? How is this? What is this? <laughs> it's so bizarre. It is so bizarre, but it's fascinating to know a bit of where it came from. It wasn't simply someone having too much time on their. I mean, they probably did have too much time on their hands when they were creating the meme, but uh, it comes right. from a you know 14th century or 15th century story about St. Nicholas. A, a fascinating story and one that we just had to cover because it's so bizarre. And his life seems to be one that spawns so many stories for whatever reason, from the kind of homely characters, characteristics of the three dowries to this like standing up against power in the story of the military officers to the slapping of Arius. Fascinating stuff. But it gets at the question I want to ask next, which is how is it that we have this saint, you know, the there's certainly lots of saints around this time, right? And there were certainly lots of saints who were generous. How is it that we go from this third, fourth century saint to Santa Claus? 
it's, it's fascinating to me, and it seems like some of the answers can be found in some of the developments over the Middle Ages, but obviously you are the scholar here. I'm only getting that from you, so I'd love for you to kind of go into that a bit more. How do we go from generous saint to Santa Claus? Right. Um, you know, it, of course, it's always difficult from this side of things to, to look back retrospectively. It, it seems there was a natural and inevitable journey uh, from St. Nicholas to Santa. But of course, you know, that's not the case, right? That's not really how history works. Probably the easiest uh, or point of explanation would simply be the death date of Nicholas which is agreed upon as December the 6th. And we have no reason to doubt that this is the authentic death date um, for, for Nicholas. I mean, there's nothing else really, you know, no other reason why you would make up that date per se. It's the day, day he died. And he died of old age, uh, of natural causes and all of that. Uh, so he was remembered each year on his death date, uh, December the 6th, which became St. Nicholas Day. And of course, December the 6th is, you know, right there at the start of the Advent season. Uh, and then the tradition of giving some kind of Nicholas gift. And of course, now we can re refer back to the to three dowries story. Um, people began giving kind of St. Nicholas gifts on that day in, in remembrance of Nicholas. But, you know, also it was just at the time of the season. It felt seasonal. Just kind of hit a couple of really good notes, uh, and, and and so families began giving you know gifts, and and so kids would uh, you know we have you know obviously stories about you know kids setting out their shoes, and um, then Saint Nicholas showing up with his horse Amerigo in the middle of the night and uh, giving a gift of you know, maybe just an orange or some nuts or something very simple, some chocolates or whatever. Uh, but the idea of gift giving, family gift giving on St. Nicholas Eve or St. Nicholas Day uh, became very much just part of the tradition uh, that families adopted as part of the holiday season leading up to uh, December 25th. And then it's in the American context that that gift giving date gets shifted to December 24th, 25th. Um, and primarily we have the, the famous poem, The Night Before Christmas, to thank for that. If you think about that poem, if you can remember it in your head, and of course, it was the night before Christmas, not the night before St. Nicholas Day, uh, that St. Nicholas makes his visit. And you know, there's not just a ton of precedence. Why, why would they shift it to Christmas? Maybe it was just a way of, let's just, let's just gather up all of our good holidays and kind of uh, you know uh, compile them into one date uh i don't i don't know I and mean, there's not really a great historical answer as to why move it from december the 6th to december 25th but it's an american thing so if you've got dutch friends they, they still celebrate saint nicholas eve and saint nicholas day that's that's the giving day that's the day of family meals and all of that um, but in the american context that date has shifted to the 25th and, and then shifted to um, Santa Claus. And so um, I don't know if you want to follow up on anything there. Or we need to jump right to Santa Claus. We can, we can go right into that if you, you'd like. Yeah, there, there's so much. Ah, there's so many paths to go down always. I think something that's interesting to me, and I think I, your point about the Dutch is worth highlighting here. Something you pull out just a little bit in your book is that and I think it's important for people to kind of broaden their perspectives a bit here, is that the Santa Claus traditions that exist today, or the St. Nicholas traditions that exist today, are very varied, right? That they range widely across the world. Was there anything that really struck you as you began looking into kind of the modern um, morphoses of Santa Claus that stood out to you as particularly interesting or wondering how we got there? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean that's a <laughs> that's a good question. You know, just every every aspect of this character has seemed to have evolved in some way and shifted from his dress uh, to you know from bishop's robes to now, of course, you know the the, the floppy hat and big red uh, fur coat and this sort of thing. 
down to his mannerisms and his his look and the reindeer. Uh, you know, to me, all of that is just fascinating. Uh, I guess maybe instead of just one piece of it, what really began to fascinate me and, and, and really strike me is that uh, this is how traditions stay alive in many ways. They have to evolve. They have to morph. Uh, you know, I'm sympathetic for some people to say, no, we, wanna, we want to reclaim the original St. Nicholas and you know, reclaim the original idea of like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's just not how traditions work. Uh, every generation has to tell a new story and tell it in language and in, in images that make sense in that cultural context. And, you know, if, if you allow traditions to do that, they, they will live. If you force them to kind of know we got to stick to the written, well, they'll just die. I mean, that's just, that's just how these things work. Uh, so St. Nicholas has been allowed to morph in every generation. And obviously not, not every one of those changes uh, is always welcome. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of uh, right and good criticism of an over-commercialized Santa Claus that truly has sort of lost its way in some ways. And we could, you know, recover something of the spirit of St. Nicholas, but even in that recovery, it'll be a new modification. It'll be a new development some way. We won't do it the same way they did in the year 400, right? It's just not possible. So I would, you know, that's part of the discovery. Like lean into that. That's okay. Tell new stories, write new legends. Um, and it's good if those things are connected to or based in the original person and the original spirit. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I don't I don't know that we have to be historical literalists in order to get the holiday right, if that makes sense. It certainly does. And I, I find that completely fascinating. And it could touch on so many other topics, but we're not going to go all the way there. But I will say that as I was reading uh, both your, your article and some of your book, I, I was struck by the fact that there are just so many like PhDs, in my opinion, to be done on this. Like You're bringing together so many different fields here. You could do this from a perspective of art history, of economics around this, of myth-making, of legend, right? of, of history. of the, like It's just fascinating, and there, there's so much work to be done. And so for all the, the theology nerds watching this, like, take up this mantle and run with it because I feel like there's so much to be done here. Um, and that, to me, that's one mark of good scholarship, which I loved about reading your books, is that it once makes you want to keep digging in and keep doing more. So just a kudos to you on that one. Um, but, I, but I do want to hit in there on the point you brought up of how Santa Claus, like how do we get from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus? This episode is sponsored by ChristianMinistryEDU.org. Org. Chances are, if you watch my videos, you love theology, and maybe you've even thought of pursuing a degree in it. But it can be difficult knowing where to start, which degrees to look at, which schools, and how you're going to fit it into your busy schedule. That's where ChristianMinistryEDU.org comes in. It's a one-stop shop for degree and career guidance, and it is structured to help you find schools and career paths that match your spiritual mission. With program and career guides that span across Christian leadership and ministry positions, you'll be able to make an informed decision about your specific calling to serve. Learn more about how you can gain the tools to pursue your faith-based future today at christianministryedu.org. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's you're right. We didn't really finish that story out, but I wanted to pause because we'd said a bunch of stuff up to that point. Uh, it is an American story. It really is. Uh, you have in the American context... Of course, you know, all these Europeans who are coming in with all these varieties of traditions. And in New York in particular, um, the, the people of New York are looking for roots. They're looking for tradition. They're looking for something that kind of can create a um, municipal cultural spirit. And John Pintard, uh, kind of a promoter in New York who is responsible for establishing George Washington's birthday and the 4th of July and um, the Erie Canal and all this kind of stuff. He's, he, he looks at New York and he says, hey, what can we hearken back to? Our Dutch tradition, uh, New York was once New Amsterdam. And, you know, there's this, this Dutch. And, of course, he, he wasn't really that Dutch. And New York at that time was not really that Dutch. But uh, there, there is a root there that he could appeal to. And so part of being Dutch 
uh, was having St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas has been, um, you know, extremely important to the, to the Dutch traditions for a long time. And so reclaiming some of that Dutch heritage meant reclaiming Sinterklaas. So in, in the Dutch, you know, it's, it's uh, St. Nicholas becomes Sinterklaas, which is, you can sort of already start to hear, it doesn't take long to just kind of morph into Sinterklaas, Santa Claus. And then you've got people there in, in New York who start writing stories about St. Nicholas, um, Washington Irving being one of them. Uh, and then, you know, very uh, within that same kind of generation, this poem, The Night Before Christmas, which we can really point to as saying this establishes the the identity of Santa Claus. Now in the poem, he's still called St. Nicholas, uh, but he has all the look of Santa Claus. If you think back to it, he's described as a, a little old elf. He's not, he's not a human. He's not a, a Christian bishop. You think about the way he's described, his physical appearance is described there. Uh, there's no Christian uh, symbolism on him. Uh, he's wearing now, you know, a, a fur coat and cap and you know, he's got a, a pipe and all of that, right? So, you know, the right jolly old elf. Um, and he's no longer, you know, so he's no longer a Christian bishop, but he's also no longer this stern historical figure. You know, this is someone who's in your home, who's, who's chuckling and merry and uh, very approachable and, uh, you know, warm and friendly, and he's got reindeer that are magical, and they've got names, and oh, he's coming down the chimney and going back up the same way, and he's giving gifts, and so it really is just a, a new persona altogether, uh, and that really captivates folks' imagination. I mean, The Night Before Christmas is the most well-known poem in the English language. If you say the first line of that poem, people will know the second line, right? It's it's that sort of thing. So. Uh, people begin, uh, and they're, they're fascinated by this. People begin um, making drawings of this and telling more stories about it. Thomas Nast in the late 1800s begins a series of, of drawings uh, for magazines that feature this new character, uh, which we could call Santa Claus. And then, um, you know, into the, into the 20th century, Norman Rockwell and then Haddon Sunblom begins a series of very famous Coca-Cola commercials. Uh, drawings that are those really rich, warm, Rockwellian scenes that depict Santa in the way that we have in our mind now. Uh, so just in that short period of time, you really have the, the evolution of this new, really American character uh, who is only marginally kind of connected with the historical person of St. Nicholas. Uh, they weren't really you know, picking him up because of the historical connection, just he happened to be sort of the right person at the right time, as it were, uh, for that. Yeah, you know, what really struck me about that when I was reading through your work is just how recent so much of this is. And if you think from the, the journey of St. Nicholas from 270 to 80, you know, somewhere in there, uh, being born then, uh, all the way to 2000s, when we are now, mm -hmm. like, it's a really small portion of that timeline that we have the American Santa Claus. Of course, you know, America's only been in there for so long as well. But it's just fascinating to re be reminded that our vision of Santa Claus, I think we all have this intuition that it doesn't line up with the historical St. Nicholas. But I'm not sure we all realize just how relatively young this tradition is, uh, which was really interesting to me. You know, as we begin to land the plane a bit, I, I would love to ask this question in that vein of the gap between the, the life of St. Nicholas and the Santa Claus we have today. And I love what you said about the, the need for traditions to evolve. And this is how stories and traditions live on. And I think that's so important. Yet within that, if we did want to reclaim some of the life of St. Nicholas, I, I wonder what you would say, you know, having looked back on your studies, if you could sit down with St. Nicholas, right, and, and you two could talk, which would be amazing, what do you think he would think of the traditions that have come about because of him? And maybe what is it that you think would be a more fitting legacy for St. Nicholas? You know, I couldn't even begin to imagine what he would think about his own legacy as it stands today, at least in the American context. Um, 
but you know, I do. So I've kind of, I'm of two minds here. Maybe I'm speaking on both sides of my mouth here a little bit. I do think it's important for uh, traditions, culturally important traditions like this to have the freedom to evolve and to tell new stories. But at the same time, I think that these stories can be enriched in our own family traditions, our own holiday experience can be enriched by an appreciation of the original historical person and, and his life. And, uh, you know, I think there's so much there in the life of St. Nicholas that is, yeah, there's certainly a story of generosity, which we talked about. Um, but it's it goes beyond generosity towards family members. You know, the, the enriching part is to say, Nicholas was giving gifts to people he didn't know and that were not family. He had no obligation towards. I think that's something that families can add into their tradition. I'm not opposed to the gift giving tradition among family members, but imagine adding a St. Nicholas gift component, uh, which is we're going to do something or give something uh, to people we don't know. And people who maybe cannot say thank you to us, uh, people who may not even know we've done this, but it's going to be important, an important expression of our faith, an important expression of our family values and all of that. I think that would be amazing, right? Um, St. Nicholas also, as we talked about the story of the military officers and Nicholas stopping that uh, execution that was happening in town uh, of innocent men. There's another side here, a side of justice. Oh, man. Phone went off there. Uh, a side that's appreciative of, of justice and cares about uh, how people are treated and, 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 and you know, is going to take initiative and bold action. And, uh, you know, all those kind of things that can be added to our view of St. Nicholas and our view of, you know, the Christmas season. Uh, so I think this is a saint for all seasons, really. But a saint that we can, you know, learn a lot more from than simply the value of gift giving to people that we love. That That's phenomenal. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up the conversation there. I, I love that idea of a St. Nicholas gift, especially that idea of giving when people can't even necessarily say thank you. I think so often we can get wrapped up in one, you know, even when we go out to do something good for people, part of us really craves that, you know, tell me how great I am for doing this, right? And I think it, it's powerful and it goes back to the idea of like not letting your right hand know what your left is doing, that, that principle there, which I think St. Nicholas is embodying so well. Well, I want to wrap up with a segment that I do with all my guests. It's a great joy to do. It's called the Final Four, not related to March Madness or the impending finals of the World Cup, uh, which personally I'm a bit more interested in. But in any case, the first question that I ask my guests is, what has been the most fruitful habit or spiritual discipline in your life? You know, that is a good question. Um, I would say simply uh, faithful, regular, church attendance mm. um you know it's one of those practices that i have i, I guess i won't say I, I intentionally did it but you know it's just become part of my own habit it's just a regular faithful attendance of church and uh, more than anything that just showing up <laughs> will keep you connected and keep you grounded uh, and you know i think sometimes we we try too hard to kind of invent something, some new way of making our faith relevant or meaningful or whatever. Sometimes you just show up. Uh, you know, that, that's all that. you need to do. I love that. And I think in our post-COVID era in which so many people's church attendance habits have really been upended, um, yeah. I think that's, that's great, the idea of just bringing it back to that very basic. I love it. All right. Outside the Bible, what has been the most impactful book on your life? Yeah. That's a really hard one. Obviously, as a theologian, you see in the background, I've got all kinds of books here. Um, you know, I was really moved by Augustine's Confessions. Mm. You know, someone who was this deep thinker, but also someone who was, with every sentence, it, he was praying, and and yet he was he was being authentic and 
honest and open and doing deep theology and deep philosophy all in the context of a confession to God. Yeah. And, and I realized that you know, theology could, you know, could, could transcend some categories in some ways that I had not fully anticipated. But that probably was early on. That's a great choice. I love it. All right. So speaking of that idea of being a theologian and having, you know, a, a love for books and being impacted by them, uh, you're, you're having coffee with your undergrad or early grad school self. What's one piece of advice you give him for his future in academia? Yeah, that's a tough one as well. I would say, you know, it's important to, um, you know, to be open to the exploration. Um, you know, I, I have met some people that, you know, they've got an axe to grind. <laughs> they've got one thing they're interested in. That's all they want to do. That's just not how the intellectual journey works. Um, I, you know, curiosity, and, and Augustine actually writes on curiositas, uh, you know, the role of curiosity in our intellectual development. And you you have to let it have its way and let it let it go and lead where it will. Um, I think you know if you you know if you're trying to find proof for an idea, you'll find it. And that's all you'll find, and it's not very interesting. Um, if you're trying to explore an idea, you know, the, and that's when the discoveries are made. I love that. Yes, I, wonderful. Lastly, my favorite question, and I love getting to ask this to every guest that I have on the channel, is that this channel is called Gospel Simplicity, and it's often pointed out to me. Uh, that the channel's topics can be a bit on the complex side. Some have even gone as far as to say that I should rename the Gospel Complexity, to which they get a resounding never, though I will give a short shout-out to someone who signed up on Patreon recently with the name Gospel Complexity. They really went all out, so good for them for that. But, in one sentence, what is the Gospel? Romans 10.9, you know, to, to all who have... Um you know, confess with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus is Lord, you know, they, they will be saved. I, I don't know that you can get any more simple than Romans 10, 9, can you? There you go. And always a safe bet, quoting Paul, for your answer on that one. Well, Dr. English, this has been such a pleasure, truly. Thank you so much for your time. And as I mentioned earlier to everyone, the link to your book, uh, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, will be in the description down below. Uh, but to all of you that are watching this sometime in the future, I want to say thank you so much for your time as well. I don't take that lightly. As always, go out and love God and love others because truly, above all else, that will change the world. And a slight twist for today's ending, I will say Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night.